Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is episode 16 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guests that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. So how old is old when we're talking about content, when we're talking about movies and television? How old is actually considered old? Uh, This question popped into my head for a couple of different reasons. One, because I made a comment on last week's show about how I'm having a lot of guests submit movies from more recent times, from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. As we saw last week, 2010, we've gone as recent as 2014. And I think of a lot of those movies as being more recent And when I started this podcast, I had kind of hoped to dive more into classic films from the 50s and 60s and 70s and before that even. But the truth is the podcast generation is going to embrace those more recent movies. At the same time, the thought came up on a podcast I was listening to this morning even. Somebody was referring to a Netflix series that came out in July as old, that it was okay to talk about it, it was okay to spoil it, because that's old. And that's only a couple of months ago. So how old is old for content? At what point does it become acceptable to just openly talk about a movie or a TV show without concern for spoilers, especially in our social media age? We had... The producers and directors of Avengers Endgame specifically ask fans to refrain from discussing any spoilers online for a couple of weeks after it first hit theaters, and yet we couldn't keep our mouths shut about Baby Yoda for a few days when The Mandalorian first aired. It's a conundrum, and I'm not sure that there's even an answer for it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. How old is old for content? At what point... Does it become acceptable to openly talk about something? At what point do we consider a movie or a TV show old as opposed to new? I don't have any answers for it. It's just something that I thought of. And hey, I've got this forum here to throw thoughts like that out. So speaking of forums, I also have social media where each week I throw out a question on Fridays as our Friday inquiry. And I gave a weird question this week for the Friday inquiry. Uh, As I said there on Facebook and Twitter, bear with me, it links last week's show with the new episode from this week. And the question was, who is your favorite wild-haired cinematic character? And I actually love the responses I got from this, not only because it it, it was really kind of neat to see who people consider to be a wild-haired character, but also because it rapidly evolved from discussion to just posting pictures of these characters, and I, I found that hilarious. Thankfully, I knew who all of them were so that I could translate those into this audio format, because if I just had to sit here and go, well, there's a picture of this, this kind of would have been interesting format. But uh, the question was, who's your favorite wild-haired cinematic character? And some of the answers I got from Talkin' Pops, who of course was our guest last week when we discussed Scott Pilgrim, his response was a picture of Knives Chow from Scott Pilgrim. Uh, I guess that was in response to me using a picture of Ramona for the question. Chris Talent said, Tank Girl. Monica Siegfried said, I don't know if this counts as wild, and it has nothing to do with the color on the example pick, but my first thought was Hit Girl, whom I totally and absolutely love as a character. 
Adam Thomas said Steve-O in SLC Punk, particularly the giant mohawk in the flashback. And we did discuss Steve-O's hair in episode 12 when Jono Uber joined me to discuss SLC Punk. So if you don't know what we're talking about, go back to episode 12. Give that one a listen. He also said the one chick in Dream Warriors with the crazy mohawk and the switchblades. Uh, Adam Uber said undercover brother, especially since the plot of the movie acknowledges the absurdity of it. Cheryl Vakina said Mary Stuart Masterson from Some Kind of Wonderful. Uh, Kat Milner said Tonks from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Jareth from Labyrinth, and Ruby Rod from Fifth Element. Uh, both Bethany Porter and Brian Ward posted pictures, the iconic picture, I guess you would say, of Mary with the wild hair in Something About Mary, and we won't talk about why it got that way, but it made me laugh. Uh, Tammy Eager said, and then there's always the princess and posted a picture of Princess Leia with the iconic buns on the sides of her head. James Jackson got in with a late entry with a picture of the Predator from the Predator movies. And I guess that fits the criteria of what I asked. It's an odd choice, but I'll go with it. And finally, Jeff Clark posted pictures of both Lilu and Ruby Rod from The Fifth Element, which gives me the perfect transition because this week's movie is The Fifth Element. So this week I'm talking with D.E. Metis from Metis Pod, which is uh, short narrative fiction episodes. They're really interesting, guys. Uh, unfortunately, the podcast hasn't had some new episodes for some time, but he assures me both in this episode and through email that he's got new episodes coming. But if you like a short story and you just, you know, have a very short commute or a quick ride somewhere or something, they're, you know, 15 minutes long, really solid presentation of these short fiction. So uh, talking with D.E. Midas, the movie he brought, 1997's The Fifth Element, which is a fantastic film, and we had a really great conversation about it. Quite a few tangents in this one, and I will admit we get into a couple of spoilers. One that I I'm not sure I'm really all that comfortable with. So I'll just give you a warning. We do talk about uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Split uh, and Glass. We don't spoil Glass because neither of us has seen it, but I do discuss the final scene in Split, which isn't really a part of the plot, and it explains why this is a trilogy instead of a standalone movie. But if you haven't seen it and you don't want it spoiled, when you hear us start talking about that, you might want to fast forward about 30 seconds. So here we go with this week's discussion of The Fifth Element with D.E. Metis. So as I said, I did notice on your blog that you do play Overwatch. And since we did talk about it that last week's episode, I do have to ask, who do you main? I'm kind of a filler, really. I like if I'm tanking, I'm either Sigma or Ryan. I'm actually pretty good with Arista, too. If I had to say a class, I'm normally a tank. Okay. DPS, Hanzo. And Soldier. See, I like Soldier. I've never gotten very good with Hanzo. Uh, I actually, I played, I was at 40 hours on Hanzo before I was at an hour with anybody else when I first started playing. And that's back when he had the scattershot bouncy arrows. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask, so when you first emailed me, you sent me quite the uh, the listing of things that you've done. And I, I did listen to a couple of those. The short selection you had on Comatose Podcast, is that about... Um, uh, from a cube to a pod? The, the difficulty of working for somebody else. I'm assuming that's true. 
Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a true story at the time. I had worked for a soul sucking job that didn't appreciate what I'd done for the company. At at one point with that company, I had saved the company over a hundred thousand dollars a year from a bunch of simple mistakes I found and inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. And they gave me like a fifty cent hour raise. <laughs> it sounds um, about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, granted, it's not, it was an unskilled, technically job, but I came into it and it just they it had been run badly. And I'm I'm a if I could do anything for a living, like out in the working world, I don't even know how I would market this, but just an efficiency person. Mm-hmm. When I see an inefficiency, I just want to fix it. Right, right. (laughs) Um, I'm a big fan of spending 20 hours to come up with a system that'll save you 10 minutes a day across all of your employees because you make up that 20 hours real quick, you know, when it's deployed. So, um, yeah, if I could do that for a living, uh, I'd love it because I just love solving those kinds of problems. But Gotcha. So, uh, you know, when I got into podcasting many, many years ago, for me, it was kind of a natural fit that I was working as a film critic. I was writing for a, a website professionally and podcasting broke out and it was like, oh, well, I have a background in you know radio production. Let me apply that to this and I'll talk about movies. And it was just kind of, it made sense because that's what I was doing already. So how do you make the leap into short form narrative fiction? I love telling stories. I just love telling stories. Me and my buddies sit around and and told stories and recapped movies, books, stuff like that for hours on end. We'd sit down and talk about like what we're doing here, talk about our favorite movies or books or things like that. And after I talked to my friends about something, I didn't even feel like I needed to consume the media because we're all just love telling stories. And um, I've written... I've written a couple short stories. I'm working on a novel, uh, you know, perpetually for the last five years. Uh, <laughs> aren't, aren't we all working on a novel? <laughs> right. I've got about 200 pages down um, on the first draft, uh, probably about two thirds of the way done. And I've got the story in my head. It's just a time thing. Right. But uh, I just, I wanted, I had been listening to some podcasts like uh, No Sleep and Pseudopod, a couple of storytelling podcasts. And I'm like, I could do that. And so I just dove in and started learning everything I could learn about audio recording, about production. And I was on a very limited budget. So I used a bunch of scrap wood and stuff to make myself a little two and a half foot by two and a half foot sound booth down in my den and uh, played around with it a little bit and was like, I can do this. So I started doing it. And then, you know, after about a year and a half, we were looking to sell the house, so I had to tear this shabby-looking booth down, and and then um, we had some stuff going on in the family, and it just it, it fell by the wayside. I totally understand. My uh, mine, you know, I ran my podcast for six years, over three hundred episodes, and when my ex-wife and I separated, it just became too challenging a thing to do. Mostly because for me, I, I was having people come over and record in the same room with me. And, right. you know, when you go from a house where you have a room that you can do that into a, a, a two bedroom apartment, it becomes a little more of a challenge. Yeah. And you can't squeeze three people into a closet and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, do and, it. I, and I, you know, I was gone from podcasting for six years and really just 
the more I've been consuming podcasts, the more I wanted to get back into it. So I jumped back into it. I, I hope yours will come back soon. Uh, oh yeah, I, I saw you hadn't you hadn't had an episode since uh, 2015. So you're you're at that five year mark too. Yep. So I can only imagine how you feel about it. I've got two episodes in the works right now. I'm waiting on lines back from some of my voice actors. I've actually got uh, Elijah Moore from CW's Legacies. He plays Wade. Oh, yeah, be doing okay. a voice. He was actually in, um, I want to say, episode five of Meet Us Pod. Uh, he's a guy okay. I know. Uh, we were in the same Extra Life Guild to uh, the, the charity. Yeah. Um, we were in the same Extra Life Guild, and, you know, we hit it off, and he's in acting. And I'm like, hey, come record some lines for me. And he did. So Cool. So. All right. Well, let's turn our focus on the movie at hand. Um, but I appreciate talking podcasting with you. Oh, yeah. It's uh, – <laughs> It's it's fun. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun, but uh, we're that's not what people want to hear us talk about. So we're talking The Fifth Element from 1997, directed by Luke Besson, written by Luke Besson and Robert Mark Kamen, starring Bruce Willis, Gary Oldman, Ian Holm, Mia Jovovich, Chris Tucker, and Luke Perry. So how do you describe... The fifth element to someone who's not seen it. Die Hard in Space. Oh, I like that. It is Die Hard in Space. Um, it is the a great, you know, regular guy. And granted, he has some military experience in the uh in the storyline, but just seems like a regular guy gets thrown into this ridiculous situation, high stakes, and there's action and comedy, a little bit of romance memorable characters and oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just um you can tell that Luke Besson took 20 something years to write this this script it's very well put together and like i said die hard in space there's explosions and things that you're like oh come on <laughs> right he started writing this as a teenager mm-hmm. and then didn't build bring it to fruition until he was a little more developed as a filmmaker right um and yeah i mean you can definitely feel his hand uh, in the world building, which I want to talk about a little later. I do want to talk about that. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad <absolutely>. you did. <laughs> um, so all the movies out there, why is the fifth element your choice for this? Oh, wow. Um, well, to be a hundred percent honest, I was going to go with Scott Pilgrim first, but, uh, oh, right. The last <laughs> right. guy I got that one. Um, <laughs> I, but honestly it was like by an hour or two, it was not even oh, really? close. Yeah, it was, it, <laughs> wow. it was, it was so tight. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm kind of glad he got it. He did a really good job. Um, yeah, I enjoyed. I didn't finish the episode, but uh, he got is really good for the part I listened to. I'll finish after I do this. I I've loved this movie since I saw it when I was uh, like 15, 16. I actually we were just we had a friend whose mother was the manager at the theater, and we would just go see every movie. And I didn't oh, know yeah. any, anything about the movie going in other than it had Bruce Willis on it, and um. <laughs> That's not why I went and saw it. I went and saw it because I saw every movie that came out and that, at that <laughs> <Right>. point. <laughs> but after the movie, I was just like, wow, that's that's my favorite movie. And very few movies have surpassed it in the years following. I mean, Lord of the Rings trilogy, I got to say that's probably up there now. But oh yeah, it, it's got everything. It's got comedy action. The pacing is fantastic. This practical effects. And it's just got everything. Also, Mila Jovovich. And, oh, yeah. and her prime. Um, <laughs> can't go wrong with that. So I want to point out, you you made the comment about the pacing. And I want you to, to just put a pin in that 
because we're going to come back to that. All right. (laughs) So the other question I want to ask is when you, when you think of this movie, you know, you're, you just randomly start thinking about it. What part of it comes to your mind immediately? Flossed in paradise. Just everything that happens on the the cruise ship or even the the trip to Flossed. once Ruby Rod comes in and it kind of gets that almost buddy cop feel to it, um, and then the you know the fantastic music and the fight scenes and everything's just moving all at once and all these different directions. That whole sequence is just great. And then the props, the props, and the fact they used a lot of singers as uh, actors in the movie. Um, I was really into Tricky at the time. Who plays right hand, right? Uh, right arm, yeah. Right, right arm. arm, yeah. Right arm. Sorry, but uh, yeah, he plays right arm. Really funky voice and i honestly i didn't know what tricky looked like at the time i just heard heard his cds and uh, i was like oh wow i think that's that is <laughs> that's tricky <laughs> so the, the reason i ask is because i always forget the opening scene to this even exists like luke perry's build what sixth billing on it and mm-hmm. he's only in it for like 10 minutes and i completely forget that that first scene even exists until i sit down to watch the movie again and then i'm like oh yeah this is how it opens mm-hmm. and he's um he had less than 100 words right in the movie he's only in it for a couple minutes but i don't i don't forget that scene because uh anytime i'm working on something and i'm having my wife or my daughter hold a flashlight <laughs> for me I know where as, this is going. As soon as that light starts drooping, Aziz, light. <laughs> I love that. And I love that we get Luke Perry keeping track of how many times mm-hmm. he said it. That's little, how he's passing the time. With his little sketch pad, yep. <laughs> what I find really interesting about that opening scene that for some reason I had never connected with me until this viewing is the story that we follow comes from the descendants of who is essentially the antagonist in that opening scene because we open with that professor and luke perry is his assistant mm-hmm. and i guess because we open with them we immediately think of them as the protagonist and then you've got the priest coming in threatening to poison them and such and so we immediately think of him as the antagonist but then we're following his descendant holy crap i've never thought and of I- that yeah, it just hit me this viewing. Oh, I've, wow. I've easily seen this movie half a because dozen times. I kind of glaze over the first scene. Uh, maybe 100% honest with you. I'll start the movie, and that's when I'm I'm during the scene with Luke Perry. I'm getting up and getting my uh, pizza rolls and, and soda or, you know, whatever I'm getting for my snacks. And I kind of sit down when it moves into, you know, the present, in air quotes, the 2264 or whatever it is. 300 years later. Right. I'd, I'd never thought of that. That's that's really cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, it really threw me when I realized that that's who Ian Holm is. As he's, you know, a, I don't. He may not be a blood descendant, but he is of that same order of priests. Right. So you know, as as who we thought was the antagonist at the beginning, I, I just found that interesting. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I, I didn't put that together. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then to go with what you said earlier, my first note after you know forgetting about the opening with luke perry is eric sarah's score and the soundtrack to this movie is phenomenal yes yes um it, i love it i love every part of it they the perfect they pick the perfect type of music and the perfect songs for every part of it very few movies do that. scott pilgrim does that i know it's kind of an outlier but hackers um has a fantastic soundtrack <laughs> I, I have to admit i've never seen hackers oh really yeah. <laughs> we should have done Hackers. 
Because <laughs> I've seen, I've probably seen Hackers more than I've seen Fifth Element. I like Fifth Element more, but Hackers is one of those that, uh, you know, I'll throw it on anytime. But yeah. uh, it's terrible. Don't don't pretend like it's a great movie. It's terrible, but I love it. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to be Dade Murphy from that movie. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. All right. Well, let's take a look at what the critics had to say about this uh, before we get too far into it. Uh, it sits at 71% at Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the audience score is a little higher in the 80s, but it's only at 52% at Metacritic, which I find really interesting. Two reviews that kind of, as usual, touch on similar ideas, but one positive, one negative. Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert wrote, I would not have missed seeing this film, and I recommend it for its richness of imagery. But at 127 minutes, which seems a reasonable length, it plays long. There is way too much of the tiresome disc jockey character late in the movie when the plot should be focused on business. Sequences are allowed to drag on, perhaps because so much work and expense went into creating them. The editor, Sylvie Landra, is ultimately responsible for the pacing, but no doubt Besson hovered over her shoulder in love with what he had wrought. A fierce trimming would preserve what makes the fifth element remarkable and remove what makes it redundant. There's great stuff here, and the movie should get out of its way. On the flip side, from The Hollywood Reporter, Dwayne Beerge wrote, The four main elements of life, earth, air, water, fire, are threatened by a fifth element in Goman's The Fifth Element. Unfortunately, the four el main elements of this production, noise, costumes, production design, special effects, are not invigorated by a necessary and woefully missing fifth element, namely a coherent and appealing story. While one can understand the Cannes Film Festival bends over backwards to program a French film for the opening night, this Luc Besson project is a generally dim-witted, generic monstrosity of misconnected gadgetry and soulless techno-gunk. It's so chaotically clamorous that one fears its bombastic shockwaves may have already caused the greats of French cinema to turn over in their graves. And I wanted to point out, Roger Ebert's the positive review here, but he does feel like the pacing is a problem. And yet you a couple minutes ago commented that you think that it's quite perfect. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not a film critic. Um, <laughs> I like terrible movies like Hackers. I like uh, popcorn action flicks. And I also like more cerebral stuff. But to me, it starts out introduces the characters it introduces this kind of silly version of the future it ramps up it puts out the stakes of what's going on it shows you the main players and then it gets to the action yeah i agree and i feel like it ramps up hits its crescendo in that final scene and then that's it it's like okay there's the movie we're done awesome <laughs> it doesn't have a whole lot of wind down at the end no, and in fact, when they are done at Floston Paradise, the movie's almost over at that point. I mean, it's 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 supposed to be two hours for the threat to arrive in Earth, and the, the whole thing is dealt with in less than 20 minutes at that point. Right. I don't find the pacing of this movie an issue. No, I don't either. I don't know. Uh, and, and like I said, I'm not a film critic. I've never studied film. I like fun movies, and it felt good to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... The other thing he talks about is Besson hovering over her shoulder in love with what he had wrought. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that goes to what we were talking about as far as world building. And one of the things I love about this movie is this feels like a living, breathing world that he's created. A that our universe. characters just happen to be in. I mean, little little elements that are never explained, mm -hmm. like like the trash you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the airport, uh, uh, airport, I guess, isn't the right word, but the space lack port. Of a better word, <laughs> the spaceport stewardess apologizes for the trash. But other than a line explaining that there's a, 
a strike going mm-hmm. on and it's a it's a throwaway line mm-hmm. like i i've missed it almost every time i've seen this there's just no explanation for it that's what i love about it is the fact that in real life if there's something going on that everybody's used to nobody talks about it right you know it may be you may hear it in the background but if people are used to these things there's no reason to go through this long explanation like of one of my pet peeves about movie and tv is how often people call other people by their names <laughs> go go watch a tv show um especially like the cw and things every single episode every character says every other character's name that they come in contact with when was the last time you and your buddies called each other by their name that's a point that i know what i mean thought about that's interesting yeah and it's to introduce the the viewer obviously i get that but in real life people don't talk about things that are normal that are just run-of-the-mill everyday things and that trash being in that airport you can tell these people are used to it or the the burning of the parasites on the uh landing gears like for them it's very clearly this is status quo they pull it out they burn it we never get an explanation as to who they are or you know where these parasites came from because we don't need it for the story and if you think about, I was actually watching that scene real intently last night, and I noticed the two guys that are in charge of moving the radioactive fuel from the ground and putting it in the ship and then removing the spent radioactive fuel and putting it back in the ground mm-hmm. are a couple of stoner dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, who are we going to get to handle this radioactive material? <laughs> and these guys are like, yeah, I'll do it, man. You got some money? <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> so, little stuff like the little details. And other things in Flossed in Paradise, he's, he's introduced, Ruby Rod's introducing all these famous people and he says laser ball. I mean, there's all, there's a whole movie called laser ball. You know what I mean? You could make a whole movie out of small aspects of this universe that, that are just glossed over completely. Right. The police control. Just if you think about this world that has been created and how silly and horrifying it is, like when Corbin gets, uh, Gets was trying to get robbed by the the neighbor with the hat on. Oh like God. the security. Yeah, that little scene with the little dance in the hallway. <laughs> this feels like an everyday occurrence to Corbin, and then that is expanded upon by the fact that he's got a collection of firearms and other weapons from I'm guessing people trying to rob him. I mean, I'm sure he had some of them to begin with. I, I was exactly going to make that same point is that, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, but it's, it's a feeling of the world being alive there that mm-hmm. that even happens because we, as the audience, like, why is he robbing Corbin? We've seen Corbin's apartment. There's nothing there worth taking. Exactly. And he's tweaking out on something. Right. And he doesn't say, Oh, he was tweaking. He doesn't explain. He's just like, there's this guy who goes around, and, you know, people get robbed all the time. By these people on this, you know, there's so much. But, I mean, part of this also may come from the fact that this was a 400-page script (laughs) at one point. It was supposed to be a trilogy. That's what he wanted to do as a trilogy. But he ended up condensing it all into one, you know, regular feature-length film. So there's probably a lot more world-building that we don't get to see and doesn't get explained because of that. The only thing in the world that I would like to have had explained— because the rest of it, I, I love it as atmosphere. I love the feeling of the world being alive. I really would have liked to have gotten an explanation for Zorg. You know, he walks with a limp. He's got yeah. that plastic or glass dome over half of his head. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's definitely a backstory to this guy that we're not privy to. And I, 
I kind of wish we had gotten something there. Not that I think it has any bearing on this story, but just that fascinates me. And I want to know more. It fascinates me and I want to know more, but I'm okay with not knowing more. Um, did you ever see Hancock? Oh, yeah. With Will Smith. Yes. Okay. Disappointing film. <laughs> I, f- I feel like the major part that killed that film for me was the fact that they went back and explained his origin of his powers. Yes, completely. I would have been perfectly fine with, I don't know how I got these powers, but I have them. Yep. And just that's the movie, you know? I feel like that would be an interesting thing to do. With Zorg, with us with the with the headpiece that you were talking about, if you watch the opera scene, there is a woman who has a similar looking piece, but it's on her neck. Hmm. So I don't know if it's just a fashion thing that Zorg's doing, because uh, if you look at his outfits, he does have some flair. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> well, and it was interesting because I'm going through when I was going through the reviews, you know, looking for the positive and the negative. Several reviews say that that dome on his head uh, gives his hair a kind of a Hitler-esque appearance. And hmm. and then the goatee thing also, if you move that up on his face, it would be a Hitler stash. Yeah. And Luke Besson apparently described Zorg using the words dandy, nouveau riche and Hitler. So he was going for a Hitler vibe. I right. never thought of him as Hitler, but apparently a lot of the critics did. Hmm. I mean, I can see it. Well, now I He's can ter- see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like the thing about the antagonist at the beginning in the Luke Perry scene. Like, you can catch something. I've seen this movie at least 50 or 60 times over the last 22 years, and I'd never, never once thought of that. Yeah. And I feel very dumb for not having thought of that. No, because it's it's a minor <laughs> it's a, thing. It's not an important thing. It's, it's, a, it's a throwaway scene, you know, not throwaway. You need the information. But I like that he shows and doesn't tell. Like he shows this this interaction happen. And, um, you know, instead of just telling, oh, in 300, you know, 300 years ago, they discovered this thing, you know. Uh, I like when they show and and not just tell. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, well, that's a, a rule of storytelling is that's exactly. how you're supposed to do it. And I know <laughs> exactly the, the previous podcast I was on, which was a, a more horror focused podcast. That was my criticism. So often of movies is show don't tell. And that, that how mm-hmm. lazy storytelling just tells the audience and doesn't show us. Right. Some, some guy saying, well, you know, 300 years ago, these guys were at this temple and, you know, they came and stole the stones because they weren't safe on earth here. They could have just said that, you yeah. know, but they'd rather show it. Which I liked that. I liked that we got that. My only my only joking criticism of that scene is he unveils the idea that every 5,000 years this happens. And then when the aliens do appear, they say in 300 years when evil returns, we'll, we, so shall we. And it's like, well, we didn't really need to know that this happens every 5,000 years then, did we? Because you've only got 300. <laughs> right. Right. They could have just met well, in 300 years. This is going to happen. All right. Well, let's uh, change focus. Uh, let's change focus to Bruce Willis for a few minutes, I guess. Um, <laughs> okay. Cause you described this as diehard in space. And uh, one of the big criticisms online seems to be that this is a Bruce Willis movie that it's Bruce Willis being Bruce Willis. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I'm okay. I'm okay with any actor doing their thing. If they do it well, I don't think anybody went into this movie thinking this is going to be Bruce Willis's great dramatic role where he, you know, wins 10 Oscars for best actor Die Hard in space. I mean, when Die Hard came out, 
everything after Die Hard was a speed. It's Die Hard on a bus, right? You know, speed um, two, Die Hard on a boat, right? And that's how they sold things. And I'm sure at some point in some pitch, someone said Die Hard in space. We've even got Bruce Willis, you know, funding or whatever. Um, but I've, if an actor does something well, sure, I'm I'm glad to see something that they're in that isn't that shtick. But you know, if you know what you're going into, that, that can be a good thing. You know, you're spending movies ain't cheap these days. No, <laughs> you know, um, I don't I don't really see that as a criticism. I'm not one of those guys. Gotcha. But I'm also I also don't care about spoiler warnings. If somebody spoils something for me, I'm like okay, <laughs> so. <laughs> might be an outlier. Yeah, I mean, I I like Bruce Willis in this. I I would agree with the criticism that it is Bruce Willis just doing Bruce mm-hmm. Willis. Mm-hmm. But again, I also wouldn't see that as a negative, kind of like you say. I mean, it's it is him doing what he does best. Yeah, I mean, he's playing a slightly slightly sillier version of John McClane in this with with a military background instead of police. Yeah, right. Um, are you familiar with movies with Mikey? Movie the YouTube series. He he does video essays t- uh, taking apart movies. Um, I want to say I've heard of it and maybe seen one or two, but it's not something I follow. Well, he did he did a um, the Fifth Element is the best Die Hard movie. Um, <laughs> he did a whole a whole uh, video about they should have just forgotten about Die Hard three and four or uh, four and five and just you know done the Fifth Element thing and said that was a Die Hard movie. <laughs> <laughs> So, because he's reluctant, he doesn't want to do anything that he does in the movie, um, except for you know hook up with Lilu. He just wants to live his life, doesn't want to be involved, but forces outside of his control push him into it, and that's all of the Die Hard movies um, up until four, um, which I didn't even see five. So I'm trying die, die. That's the Die Hard a New Day or a New Day to Die Hard. I think um, that one was terrible. Yeah, that sure. Yes. The one with the son. Yes, that one was terrible. Oh yeah, my I never God. even watched it. Um, yeah. After four, I was like, "Die Hard is dead to me." Um, yeah, if you didn't like, see, I so, liked four, but if you didn't like four, you definitely wouldn't have liked five. Right. It just felt too. Um, it, granted, I like action movies, but it was so each each Die Hard movie has that one scene. The first three have that one scene where you're like, "Well, that wouldn't have happened." You know, the jumping off the plaza in one, the airplane exploding and he ejects in two, and then the pipe of water shooting him up in the air in number three. But other than that, they're pretty grounded in reality. Yeah, he's extremely lucky, but it's still plausible except for those scenes. But number four, I mean, he's jumping a motorcycle into a jet or something (laughs) like that. I was like, "Eh, we've jumped the shark here, you know. One of the things I find really interesting about the introduction of Bruce Willis's character here, Corbin Dallas, is that that opening scene of him, you get so much without any words. You get all this mm-hmm. character development about him, that he's quitting smoking and, you know, uh, he has no food in his fridge. You know, it's, it's like it just tells you so much about this character, again, showing you, not telling you. You know, there mm-hmm. it, it may put it on the screen a little more prominently, but it still picks uh, expects you to pick up the pieces and put them together about what this guy's life is like. Now, I'm going to go back to the cigarette because I've thought a lot about that cigarette. Is Corbin Dallas trying to quit smoking or is that uh, government? Is it required that if you're a smoker to have that device that dispenses you? the one cigarette a day or whatever, unless you're rich, like Zorg, obviously we don't know. And that's, I, I had we the exact know. same thought. 
uh, is that, you know, is that a mandated Which only for a day or is it? Yeah. And then is the filter on the cigarette being 90% of the cigarette? Is that because there's a lack of tobacco in this future world? Or is that because government regulation has pushed it? A, t- a cigarette can only contain 10% tobacco, you know? Uh, it does these kind of things wonder me because like the police control scenes, you constantly see in these yellow dots everywhere. Right. And er- and everybody, as soon as they say this is a police control, you're supposed to put your hands on the yellow dots. Right. And they comply pretty quick. Even, you know, right arm, who's obviously the criminal yep. uh, henchman of Zorg. He does not take his time to put his hands on those dots. He does not. He does not. So it seems kind of totalitarian, you know, dystopian future if you take out all the silliness. So it's very interesting dichotomy between things being silly and fun, but also kind of horrifying. Well, yeah. And they've obviously screwed up their planet because when he has to take the taxi down closer to the surface level, he's doing that because he's hiding in the smog. And where'd all the water go? Yeah. Because New York is the water levels like a hundred foot lower than it is. So are, and obviously we've spread out through the universe so have they picked up a bunch of seawater and taken it on the ships with them? You know, um, you, you wonder about these things. These are other world building. Like throughout this entire movie, almost every scene has something in it that you're like, there's a whole story there. Almost every scene. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's the points on his license. I mean, there's a story there. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he mm-hmm. lies and tells Finger that he has 50 points. And when he gets in his cab, we discover he's got five points. And then, hell, by the end of that drive, he has no points. Yeah, but, he's done. But yet, somehow, it still lets him drive. Of course, like, he does, you know, beat the hell out he of the system. Rips the machine out, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you have to buy points to drive. Maybe that's how they can they can control fuel. Uh, consumption partly, you know, who knows? There's all, I mean, you could write, you could write a hundred stories in this universe. Oh, yeah. And a uh, little uh, trivia I just read uh, that, that finger was Vin Diesel. Yep. He was not in the credits. I, uh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't so. either. I guess my, my one concern of Bruce Willis doing Bruce Willis is we've, we've gotten to the point now where that's gotten him direct to video, direct to, home streaming, whatever you want to call it now, but what we used to call direct video in the day. And that's a shame because Willis is a talented actor. He's done some really good dramatic roles, but he seems Mm -hmm. to be comfortable doing this. And that just hasn't kept him up in the air, I guess. Right. And and, you know, how much of that is he, he's not taking because he wants to to pull back a little bit, you know, Um, if I had the money he had, I mean, him and Demi Moore own a town, (laughs) <laughs> and and some some I can't remember what some, they own the entire town they own all the stores, all the land everything you know they bought it maybe he's just done you know he's done trying to do high high demand stuff yeah could be could be I don't know I haven't I don't really watch interviews or anything with actors but that could be that I haven't seen one with him in a while and and I I try not to focus too much on that because we do have stuff like the Fifth Element to remind us you know of what he's capable of. And he was in um, glass glass recently, wasn't he? Yeah. That was the, the third movie in the unbreakable series. So yeah. 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 I didn't um And unbreakable saw... is one of those movies. I absolutely love him in for a good dramatic performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very understated performance on that one. He, um, I've only seen unbreakable. I did not see the oh, split. I was split. gonna say with the split personality. <laughs> right. Split. <laughs> yeah, split <laughs> it's, was it's on my list. <laughs> split was really good, and uh, unfortunately, that's the, kind of the big curveball that's thrown to you in the last scene. Is 
oh, there's Bruce Willis. This takes place in the same world as Unbreakable. Uh, it wasn't advertised that way. It literally is the last like 30 seconds of the movie where you see him in a in a cafe watching the TV story about James McAvoy's character. And that's what hmm. that was the glue that then led them to Glass. I haven't gotten to see Glass yet. Um, it's, it's, it's on my list and I believe it's on HBO right now. So I need to get off my ass and watch it. Let's see. Uh, talking about spoilers like that. Um, I was I was just talking to somebody the other day about how trailers now ruin big huge plot twists or awesome scenes that you're like oh wow that's gonna be like um i know it's not a lot of people don't like it but batman versus superman oh god um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I fall in the don't like it category (laughs) i i enjoyed it for what it was um but what bothered me about that was in the last trailer they showed that doomsday was going to be in the movie yep and i'm like why would you do that not why would you have him in the movie, but nobody who was going to go, who was not going to go see that movie is going to go see it now because Doomsday's in it. Right. But for people who go see the movie and then Doomsday shows up or even the Spider-Man and uh, uh, Captain America Civil War. Yeah. They advertised that Spider-Man's going to be in it. And I was like, people would have jumped out of their seats to see Spider-Man swing in completely unannounced. And do this because everybody knew that Sony and Marvel were having a war over Spider-Man and that Spider-Man was never going to be in the MCU. And then all of a sudden he swings in in the middle of this movie. That would have been an amazing scene, but it was spoiled by the trailer. I would bet you will see a change in that very soon because of what Jon Favreau managed to do with Baby Yoda in The Mandalorian. How there was absolutely zero leaks mm-hmm. about that, and that has become everybody is talking about, and nobody knew about it. And apparently, mm-hmm. he got advice from um, uh, from Donald Glover about how to handle that, how to keep it under mm-hmm. wraps. But that's also part of why Disney didn't have any toys ready for the Christmas season, is because of right. how tightly he wanted to keep it under wraps. But I think Disney will see the payoff from that. Mm-hmm. And you will they, that will become a, the new trend is what can we surprise um, audiences with? See, I like that. And like I said, with spoilers, if it's a film that I'm really wanting to see, I'm going to go see it opening weekend. If it's a TV show I'm really wanting to watch that I would care about the spoilers, I watch it when it comes out, you know, or I'll just completely avoid the Internet until I get to finally watch the episode I'm, I'm missing. But when it comes to watching a trailer, a Netflix is particularly bad. Netflix trailers are like four minutes long. They show you the twist, if there's a twist, and then you're just like, well, I don't have to watch the movie now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's terrible. Well, and that cracked me up because I, I watched this on uh, on Amazon because I apparently have never owned the DVD, which I find that hard to believe. I must have lent it to somebody and, and lost track of it. But uh, the trailer for this on Amazon isn't a trailer. It's the first minute and a half or two minutes of the movie. It's, well, the, scene, it's the scene with the professor and Luke Perry. <laughs> That's a that's a terrible representation of the movie. Yeah, I know. I was like, that's not a trailer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, boy, we're getting sidetracked here. Uh, so yeah, we are. Mia Jovovich. Oh, man. She was. I'm going to get myself in trouble by pointing out this because my girlfriend is rather young. There's an age discrepancy between us. But she was 22 when this movie came out. Bruce Willis is 20 years her senior. I'll be all right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, 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 she also has what a um, hundred extra pairs of chromosomes or something like that. So, <laughs> you know, if we're if we're talking about 
there being a, a difference, let's go with that and not the 20 years uh, <laughs> <laughs> between the actors. <laughs> That's true. And if we're talking about genetically, she's at least 5,000 years old. Well, it's also true. You know, if you break that down. But uh, yeah, you know, Bruce Willis, is, I'm told he's a good looking guy. I, I find it fascinating that, you know, when he's having his conversation earlier on in the movie, he says that he, he wants the perfect woman. And literally, that's what he gets with Mia Jovovich, with, uh, with Lilu. You know, when he tries to kiss her, he's trying to kiss the perfect woman. Right. And I wonder how the uh, Twitter sphere would go over with that scene being in a movie now with him the kissing while she's passed out. But then she pulls <laughs> a gun on him and he admits that nuts. what he did was wrong. I think Twitter mm-hmm. would go nuts over it. I mean, in a good way. I think they'd be like, <laughs> hell yeah, girl. And he immediately apologized and realized what he did wrong and apologized. So. That's right. Should he have done it in the first place? No, but he quickly realizes that. <laughs> I want to say at some point I read an article about how this movie was terrible for feminism because like there's literally lines in the movie where they're like, you know, she's our greatest tool. She's the greatest, you know, they're talking about her like she's an object Yeah. throughout the movie. Because, I mean, technically she's part of the weapon that is going to destroy evil, which I'm still unsure on how, on what would have happened if the ball had hit the earth other than the typical, you know, asteroid collision damage. If it would have just like completely obliterated all life or. I would assume that because that's its goal. Its goal is right. to exterminate life, just pure and simple. So I assume that that's what would have happened. I would have thought she would have been a good thing for a more feministic viewpoint, specifically because of the way Besson presents her. Because in that scene in the past, when the professor's reading the symbols, he is talking about him. And oh, yeah, when, when, they're, they, when they're resurrecting her. And yeah. when they rescue the, the glove from the ruined ship that they then use to rebuild her, they're talking about him. And they use masculine mm-hmm. pronouns to talk about this perfect species. And then it's her. So I almost would have thought that that's a little empowering. That's what I would have thought, too. That's what I would have thought, too. But I, I can't remember. I mean, it could have been a decade ago I read this. But uh, it was basically about the language that she's, you know, a tool and an object and all that. Um, that was the lines that were problematic. But yeah, I mean, on the whole, she kicks more ass than Bruce Willis does. I mean, oh. he shoots more people, but he's using a gun. She actually fights these Mangalores, or however you say it, um, who they took a bomb like dead on. And when he pushed the button on the bottom of that uh, rifle that Zorg was showing him. Yeah. He, they blew up the whole building and they survived that. Oh, I assumed these were different Mangalores. Um, no, because if, well, I mean, it could be, but one of them is real tore up. Mm, maybe on the ship. And I guess since they can shape shift into anything, they could use the same face. But the same actor, when they walked in for the scene where he was displaying the gun, mm-hmm. the face that he was wearing mm-hmm. is the f- same face that he was wearing on Lost in Paradise when he was posing as a waiter. Oh, that's true. But I mean, they could, I mean, if they can shapeshift, they can shapeshift into anything. You would just think that would be the same guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've always assumed they were different. That's something I'll have to look at next time I watch the movie. Yeah. Because I mean, I know they only had so many of those suits. So, and those things, what was it? I think I read three people, 20 minutes to put one of the suits on on an actor. So one of the things I I, I wanted to ask in, in your opinion is about Lilu as far as is she hypersexualized because we do have a couple of naked shots of her 
And Roger Ebert noted about the costumes that the costumes are by French courtier Jean-Paul Gaultier, whose favorite strategy as a designer is to start by covering the strategic places and then stop. Right. And it reminded me of uh, a theory that was used in costuming way back on the original Star Trek series that became known as the Thice titillation theory, which was that titillation comes from showing skin, but it, it doesn't have to be those sexual areas to, to pull that off. Oh yeah. Just seeing the ankle on the right chick, man. <laughs> you know? um, no, that's hundred percent true. Um, they did sexualize her, but I think part of that didn't, didn't like her and Luke Besson. Didn't they marry or something? So maybe he was part of that might've just been uh, him showing off his wife. Part of that might've been, they wanted the other characters to, see her as perfect and that's how dudes are. Um, there's a lot of really good looking women in this movie. Um, I mean like even the women that work at the McDonald's are very attractive, very made up. So that may just be another part of the, the society that they live in. I don't recall. Well, no, I was gonna say, I don't recall any, any ugly females, but I think on Flawston there was some, you know, not model looking women. Well, it's interesting you you brought that up. She and and uh, Luke Besson were married. They were married from ninety seven until two thousand. She's now married to Paul W S Anderson, which I, that's an odd film to go from Luke Besson to that filmmaker is is interesting. Who's, but we, but we who's won't go Anderson? down there. Huh? Who's Anderson? Paul W S Anderson. He did uh, Mortal Kombat and the Resident oh. Evil movies. And okay, <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> but part of the reason I think that's hilarious is because the diva. Is Luke Besson's fiance at the time? Hmm. Because the original actress didn't show up, so he got his fiance to fill in. Oh wow! I didn't know that one either. <laughs> so, you just pull all kinds of stuff. <laughs> oh, acting in Hollywood—it's—it's it's all inbreeding. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. They um. No, the the hypersexualization of Lilu. I don't know. Could have could have been a product of the time for the film, you know, industry that was all is all about hot women it was not about the time Baywatch was big. So I, I don't know if it was just uh that was just the film choice they went with, or if it shows more about the society. Cause if you look at the outfits that the stewardesses are wearing on the flight to Flossed in paradise, they're not much more than Lilu's um, thermal bandages. I'm torn because physically. Yes. I think they are definitely sexualizing her with some of the outfits they put her in, mm -hmm. but she's also this kick-ass figure who is a woman. Right. And so I feel like that as a film viewer, as a film critic, I don't know how to rationalize that disconnect. I don't know. Um, the The first outfit she's in is the thermal bandages. Right. Which, you know, you can, that serves the plot that they just put this, you know, medical thing on it because they didn't expect her to go out in it. But later on, she does get, I mean, she's in pants. They're a little tight and, you know, the full shirt with the little... Uh, orange whatever that thing is rubber bands <laughs> with holes in it thing um <laughs> whatever you want to call that that's not that's not super sexualized once she's in that outfit because um other than the pokey nipples through the uh the holes the other women in the in the in the movie i mean even the when the mangalores turn into the people to try and get onto the ship uh that they say they're corbin dallas right one of them is uh disguised as a female Where i mean she's got a completely translucent uh, skirt on with a thong yeah you know out in public so i think that that's just the fashion of the time 
Which again, well, and that's why I found Ebert's quote about uh, Gautier so interesting. You know, to to start by covering the strategic places and then stop. Exactly. Yeah. And just that's it. So one of the things I hadn't realized, you know, kind of that same thing about the the protagonist or antagonist of the opening movie being Ian Holmes' character's predecessor, Zorg and Corbin Dallas, our hero and our primary antagonist, never meet. They're on screen together for about three frames. Right. And that's it. Yeah. Which I think is awesome. (laughs) And while they are aware of each other's existence in some capacity, Mm -hmm. they aren't really aware of the other being their adversary at what's going on. Right. Yeah. um, And and at the very beginning of the movie, Corbin works for Zorg. Right. The cab company he works for is owned by Zorg Industries or whatever the name of the company is. And you have that scene where Zorg says to fire a million people. And then the next scene, you, Dallas gets his termination notice, mm-hmm. and, and you you have to be quick to catch that it, it he works for Zorg's company. But again, the, because the sequence of scenes comes so close together, you can kind of put that together without seeing right. It. But it's he doesn't realize that Zorg is after the stones, and Zorg knows that Corbin Dallas won the trip, but he doesn't realize that Corbin Dallas is there to get the stones as well. Right? Yeah, because and and if he had been listening to the radio. And turned on the Ruby Rod show, he might have might have learned that, but uh, <laughs> he didn't. So yeah, he knows he doesn't. He has no. Corbin Dallas has no idea that they're looking for the stones. The the bad guys are looking for the stones. Also, he's just told go get these stones. He's not even. He, he I don't think he really knows until the shooting starts that the that somebody else is also coming for the stones. You may have to deal with. It was supposed to be a quiet, discreet operation. Him go in, get the stones from the diva, and bounce back to earth but you know it kind of got muddied up a little bit there when i absolutely love how the story propels all the different sides to that point of trying to get on the ship oh yeah that was great it's really smooth and it's moving every piece into the right place for that and yet you know that they all can't get on the ship as corbin dallas Right. Uh, but I just I love how all the pieces are moved into the right place by Besson as far as the script goes and, and as far as the editing goes. It just feels really cool. Yeah. And I mean, Finger would have had to be. Well, OK, hold on just a second, because he's told I'm trying to remember because no, because the Mangalores, I've got it muddied in my head now. The Mangalores were not working for Zorg at that point. They wanted to get the Sones. They're trying to get revenge on Zorg to get revenge on Zorg. That's right. right. So uh, they're yeah. they're doing it independently, I guess, assuming that they can because you know, they're mercenaries. So they're doing it, assuming that they can uh, get the stones and then get back at Zorg. You know, right. And they will find more. another buyer, you know, because if he's willing to give them that, you know, what four cases of those super high tech weapons, then somebody else is willing to buy them, too. So which is still one of my all time favorite lines in this movie, the, the about the cases. You asked for a case. We brought you a case. A case with four stones in it. Not one or two or three, but four. Four stones. But what the hell am I supposed to do with an empty case? We are warriors, not merchants. But you can still count. Look, it's easy. Look at my fingers. Four stones, four crates. Zero stones, zero crates. Pack everything up. We're out of here. My my favorite, one of my favorite lines, and I say it, um, very few people catch the reference because this isn't a huge movie. Rewatch where people know the quotes. But, uh... The Asian guy who's pulled up to Corbin's window when he gets fired, and 
<laughs> oh yeah he's like uh, oh that's a bad look and i say that sometimes be like whoa fifth element you got a message yeah and i can open it could be important yeah like the last two i got were important first one was from my wife telling me she's leaving second one's from my lawyer telling me he was leaving with my wife yeah, that is bad luck which is one of my favorite details of this movie that that right there the the uh the thai food because he specifically told told the the cat he would get thai food later mm-hmm. um that that shop that just floats around the city and comes up to your window yeah it's like a uh, uber you know 20 years early yeah i love that <laughs> so our primary villain of course is evil which as you said you right. don't quite understand how how that works and, and well the, if he's just going to earth obviously there's other life spread throughout the universe. Is Earth just like the first the first planet he's going to hit and he's just going to pinball around the universe smashing throughout life? Or is he just pissed at Earth? That's the, the question in my mind. Because obviously, you know, Flossed in Paradise, that, you know that's not the only place that they fly ships to. So is there an, are there more of these things out there? I, I mean, I would guess not since there's only one weapon against it. Well, that's that's what I was going to bring up because that was a question my girlfriend asked when I when we watched the movie last night. Is this this happens every five thousand years? Is what we're told, right? Every five thousand years, right. evil comes. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this movie, they've defeated evil, and it is now this giant, uh, mm-hmm. devoid of life rock. Mm-hmm. Is that where the moon came from? Hmm. Could be. Is that a previous attempt by evil to attack the planet that got overcome? And now we're going to have two moons and another 5,000 years, there's going to be another threat? Quite possibly. The interesting thing is that our moon is way bigger than that thing, just based on the scene where it died. And you can see our moon mm-hmm. in the background. And it's they said it was 67 miles from impact. So it's only in you know 67 miles up, whereas our moon's... Yeah, oh, I don't even remember the number. But <laughs> it's it's a lot further than that. So I mean, I, the moon could be. It's an interesting a previous thought. attempt. It is and an it, interesting thought. But I think that they were kind of kind of telegraphing that with the scene with the moon or you know the evil being dead and the moon in the background. But the previous evil must have been a lot bigger, and they shot the Lilu laser a lot earlier to get it to stay that far out. Yeah, <laughs> Lilu laser. I like that the Lilu laser. Yeah, but yeah, that's uh, it. It could be, um, but I, I'm just interested in if it hits Earth. Grant is going to take out everything on Earth. That's kind of explained. But what about the rest of the life in the universe? Because, in my opinion, if we're traveling like that, there's going to be other colonies starting up. If you know, faster than light travels around. And again, that's part of the world building that we don't we don't get to know. You know, right. So what's your favorite scene from this movie? Uh, favorite scene is the the uh, opera. When Diva's up there singing and the fight scene's happening, even though it has a couple of silly parts in the fight scene. But yeah, when she's singing that opera that's impossible for humans to sing and Lilu's in there kicking ass and you get the reaction from Corbin and that's a genuine reaction because he hadn't heard the song or seen that actress in right. full makeup yet. They did that a lot to him in this movie, apparently. Yeah surprised him with stuff to get more genuine reactions which i think is a great way um, of making films i like that oh yeah i mean it worked for uh throwing hans off the building um well, it worked for, it, it's funny because you have you know ian holm in this and of course that's one of the things they did in alien they didn't tell everybody what was going to happen with the chestburster scene right get so, genuine reactions and and die hard like 
you know, they dropped him on one instead of three. Alan Rickman. <laughs> that was a genuine Alan Rickman scared face is what that was. Yeah. But, but yeah, um, the, that scene and the opera and leading up to the opera too, when Ruby Rod's introducing people and trying to get Corbin to say more than one word into the mic and getting so frustrated. And I was just <sighs> thinking about like these YouTube vloggers that walk around with their cameras around town and they're talking to people or they're doing their thing. And it's kind of like, Granted, it's radio on the movie, but it's a very similar thing, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and much like current contemporary culture, we didn't talk much about Chris Tucker. So, um, <laughs> Chris <laughs> that, was one, Tucker. <laughs> that was one of the things I wrote down is whatever happened to Chris Tucker. And apparently he's gone back to stand up com- comedy hmm. and, uh, but is a clean comedian because he, uh, is, is tied to his Christian beliefs. Oh, good for him. You know, yeah. That's going, doing his own thing. Um, cause that's, that's tougher, a lot tougher. Oh, yeah. For a comedian to have to make sure they're PG. Yeah, I listen to a lot of stand-up comedians talk on podcasts about being comedians. And and some of them talk about how much they wish they could do a clean act, but they've just set themselves up in a way that that's not possible for them anymore. Yeah. You, you see you know, Joe Rogan's doing a clean set. You're like, yeah, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking my kid to that. To be honest, I hadn't even thought about Chris Tucker in five years before I watched this again last night, other than, you know, when I'm watching a movie that he's in, but I don't sit in, uh, why, what was he in last? Uh, he was in silver linings playbook was his last big thing. If I remember correctly. Oh, wow. That was a while ago. Yeah. That was 2012. Hmm. I want to say. Yeah, he was, he was hot for a minute there. Oh yeah. He had, he in- he, I looked it up again last night. I, I was looking up cause I, I wanted to know what happened to him. He had this, the year this came out, he had three movies. The next year he had three movies. Uh, you know, of course, the rush hour really propels him into. Oh into, yeah. Let's see. Uh, no, the last thing he did was 2016. Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, which I'm not very familiar with, even though I know it was nominated for some Oscars, if I remember correctly. I don't. I'm, that's the first time I've heard those words in that sequence. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, in this movie, I mean, you know, no, I had never seen him before in anything. I think was he was Friday was before that, right? He was in that, but yes. I didn't. I don't think I saw Friday before I saw Fifth Element. But yeah, when he when he came out, I was just like, what, what? <laughs> and then, our, oh, okay, he's a he's a celebrity personality. I get okay, but everybody's outfit was kind of crazy, you know? Yeah. He can simultaneously be really annoying. I mean, Roger Ebert criticized being so heavily featured in the film, but I also think he's a really important part of the story as far as, you know, setting the world. Well, yeah. I mean, if he hadn't been there, things would have gone very differently for Corbin because Corbin was trying to get those stones out of the diva and he was holding the gun on the Mangalore 
Now, granted, he did pull the trigger, which caused the Mangalores to come back in there, which just, you know, it made Corbin have to kill them quicker. And who knows? Maybe he would have got out with the stones if Chris, Chris, if Ruby Rod hadn't pulled the trigger. But I, I don't think he would have. I think there still would have been some having to shoot his way out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was, he was essential to the plot, but he was a really fun character. And a lot of people that I've talked to, that's what they remember about the movie is Ruby Rod. Oh, yeah. Well, so. and that's, again, that's part of why I asked you at the beginning what you thought of when you thought of this movie, because a lot of people do think that. Mm-hmm. And it, he spices up the last last act quite a bit. And even though he's, you know, over the top and everything, he wants to be helpful. Like, even though he's, you know, he's screaming and whatnot, like, you can tell he wants to be helpful and get through this. And I thought that was kind of cool that he's not just completely self-centered and, you know, just trying to survive because he wouldn't have gone into the temple and helped and he wouldn't have, you know, there's more to the character than at first glance. Oh, yeah. And I think all most of the characters are rounded like that. Oh, yeah. It's most of the characters, you can, like you said, this world is full of people who have lives outside of what we see, you know? Oh, yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we move into the closing credits here? Um, no, no, I think uh, I think we covered everything. I, I especially want to talk about the world building and how the little details that was. Yeah. Well, it kind important. of blows your mind when you when you watch it. Just look for all the little stuff uh, for people who haven't seen it and may go watch it after this talk, even though we've spoiled a lot of it for you. It's definitely still worth watching, even if you know everything that happens in the plot. Agreed. All right. Well, we've got the algorithm says this is kind of a lightning round of reactions to movies. Uh, various algorithms say you might like if you liked this movie. Uh, okay. So it's kind of a yeah, you like it. No, you don't like it. Where the hell did that connection come from? Uh, <laughs> interestingly, you've got several movies that have come up for previous movies that have been on this podcast. So I, I, I find a couple of those connections really surprising. So all right. So the algorithm says you ready. Okay. All right. Gattaca. I was indifferent towards it. Okay. I watched it and can't really tell you anything about it. <laughs> like, I don't recall that it was super entertaining or terrible. Next. <laughs> uh, 12 Monkeys, which I'm assuming is because of Bruce Willis. Right. Uh, I loved that one. Um, yeah. I'm a sucker for any kind of time travel. That's my, my favorite genre of all time. Anything that happens with time travel, I'm into. All right, Total Recall, the 1990 version. Only one I've seen, which is good. Uh, loved it in 1990. Haven't watched it since maybe 92, but I've got very fond memories of it. It's still pretty good, and the remake wasn't bad. It's different, but it wasn't okay. bad. I'll check it out. Uh, Starship Troopers. Oh, man, one of my favorites. <laughs> it's schlocky. It's got terrible dialogue, but, man, they're shooting them bugs, and, and then that shower scene with all them boobies when I was a teenager. Yes, sir. <laughs> And I'm assuming, you know, it has a totalitarian government, as you kind of mentioned, this does as well, yes. although it's a lot more subtle here. So, right. District nine. Loved it. Loved everything about it, except for the fingernail scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the mummy. Which version? The Brendan Fraser. Good. It's the only one I've seen. Uh, I really like that. Uh, I like that it was fun and action. So I, I get the connection there. Yeah, I, and I guess especially because you have the opening scene here that's set in Egypt. You know, 1914 <laughs> Egypt. So, yep. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I really enjoyed that one. Um, I don't see too much of a connection other than Gary Oldman. Gary yeah, Oldman was in Hitchhiker, right? No. No? 
Nope. Who am I thinking? Who was in Hitchhiker? Alan the bad Rickman. guy. The bad guy. No, the bad guy. Um, Not the bad guy. The president. Oh, that was uh, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. No, I enjoyed that movie, but I don't. I don't get the connection other than it being a space space movie. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of silly. <laughs> and the Chronicles of Riddick. I have not seen the Chronicles of Riddick. I have seen the first one. Pitch Black. Pitch Black. I have seen that and I really enjoyed it. And Chronicles of Riddick has been on my to watch list since it came out. But there's always something on my to watch list I want to watch a little more than Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I've, I've not of, seen any of those movies, uh, which is, again, they're on my list. I totally understand what you mean. They're, they're on my list, but I just haven't pulled the trigger on them. Well, they were... Um, Based on a D&D campaign that Vin Diesel ran in college. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously all the D&D references were taken out because copyright issues and all that. But the basic storyline was a like what him and his friends did in this campaign. So it's like I said, it's on my list. I, I see it. It's sitting there. And I'm like, I'm going to watch that. But first, I'm going to watch this. <laughs> All right, finally, we always end with the pop quiz. Four questions that are related to the movie in some capacity. Uh, you ready? Yep. All right, number one, the digital effects company paid a lot of attention to detail in their creations. Although it's barely perceptible on screen, the license plates on the vehicles bear what state slogan? A, New York, the Empire State's Back. B, New York, the New Big Apple. C, New York, still better than Jersey. Or D, New York, the Fuck You State. D, New York, the fuck you state. That's right. <laughs> uh, number two, Corbin Dallas has several phone conversations early in the picture with Finger, who is trying to get the cab in for an overhaul. What uncredited actor voiced Finger? You've already addressed this one. Vin Diesel. Yep. Uh, number three, Ruby Rod was originally named Lock Rod, a name that appears in the novel adaptation and script. As the character went through a transformation to his current state, what was not an acknowledged influence? A, the laser beam. B, the musician Prince. C, the musician Michael Jackson. Or D, the cantina band in Star Wars. The cantina band in Star Wars. That's right. They actually apparently wanted Prince to play the role. He was the first choice. That would have been really interesting. <laughs> right. And then the, the laser reference was a ruby laser was like one of the first lasers. Yeah, it had a so. it had a ruby rod base to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they wanted Michael Jackson to play uh, ruby rod also. So yeah. I'm glad they didn't get Michael Jackson to play it. I'm actually glad a couple of the casting choices. I'm glad they ended up going with the actors they went with. Um, they wanted the general who was the advisor to the president. He was in the room with the president most of the time. Right. Um, he, they wanted Kevin Costner for that role. Which I could see, actually. I can see it, but I really like the actor they got. He's just yeah. kind of got that, your Uncle Tom, not Uncle Tom, that's kind of a, a loaded reference. Um, <laughs> your Uncle Steve, you know, <laughs> who watches a little too much reality TV. He just kind of has that vibe. Yeah. <laughs> He's, uh, and Kevin Costner would have brought too much seriousness to the role, I yeah. feel like. Um, just in my brain. And that's one of the problems with more well-known actors is like you were saying, the Bruce Willis being Bruce Willis. When Will Smith plays a character, it's Will Smith playing a character. It's not that character. Well, and the actor here that you're talking about is Brian James, uh, mm -hmm. who is, he's a character actor. He's one of those that when you see him, you immediately recognize him. Hey, it's that don't guy. Know. Yeah. It's that guy. I mean, he's in Blade Runner, mm -hmm. you know, and when you see him in Blade Runner, you go, Oh, it's the dude from the fifth element. Right. But or the guy um, who 
was welcoming the diva into her suite is yes. the guy from Mousetrap. Yes. And uh, <laughs> something about Mary. Mm-hmm. He's He's been in quite a few movies, but to me, he's the, the guy from Fifth Element. Yeah. In my brain, because that was like the first thing I saw him in. So, All right, last question. What odd, quirky trait do cast members Bruce Willis, Mia Jovovich, Chris Tucker, and Gary Oldman all share? A, they are all left-handed. B, they are all born on leap day. C, they are all the same astrological sign. Or D, they all got matching element tattoos. They all share the same trait also with Luke Perry, left-handed. Yep, that's right. I didn't realize Luke Perry was as well. <laughs> I noticed because he was shooting left-handed. Um, when he pulled that gun out at the beginning, I'm a, I teach firearms courses on so the weekends. you noticed that pretty quickly. <laughs> I noticed, yes. I always notice firearm stuff. And I got to tell you, watching movies and TV and having knowledge of firearms and how they work and whatnot, it's kind of infuriating, all of the bad information that's out there. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Walking all dead right. is the worst. But anyway. <laughs> Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Um, I'm... Uh, new episodes of Meet Us Pod are coming out soon. It's science fiction, fantasy, and horror short stories told in various styles. Uh, it's just M-E-D-U-S-P-O-D, um, like Medusa Pod without the A. Uh, new episodes coming out in about a week or two, and I'm hoping to keep a, at least every two or three weeks in a new episode coming out. Yeah, that's that's pretty much all I wanted to promote was Meet Us Pod. Well, I really hope you get it going back again and, and keep some regularity to it. I enjoyed the episode that I listened to today, and... Uh, uh, you definitely got a subscriber here. Cool. Good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show and talking Fifth Element with me. Great. Thanks. I had a really good time. So is this just another Bruce Willis movie? Is Lilu a strong female character or does the film damage that perception by referring to her as an item? Or does that even matter? And do you agree with me that we might see a change in how studios avoid spoiling material in a post-Mandalorian world? Let me know what you think. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode, which may require you to hear a couple different versions of the story before you can determine the truth. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can just use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are appreciated, although I also appreciate it if you just help spread the word and build up some listeners for me. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to D.E. Metis for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll try to get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rave Telsh, and this has been Have Not Seen This. <laughs>